Welcome to the ATS SRN podcast series. My name is Brad Edwards and today I'm joined by Associate Professor Garen Hamilton, a sleep physician researcher and director of the sleep research program at Monash Health in Australia. And together we have the absolute pleasure of speaking with Professor Doug McAvoy, the lead author on the SAVE trial, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine last month. Doug, thanks for joining Garen and myself. It's a pleasure. I was wondering if you could uh, start off by summarising for us the main results of the SAVE trial. Mm-hmm. Well, the SAVE study was a randomised controlled trial. It was a secondary prevention study in which people with the, uh, existing coronary artery or cerebrovascular disease who had a co- a coexisting a moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea were randomised to CPAP plus their usual cardiovascular care versus cardio- uh, usual cardiovascular care alone. And the main findings were that uh, we could not demonstrate a benefit in terms of um, reduced incidence of future cardiovascular events, uh, the events being a composite of um, acute myocardial infarction stroke, admission to hospital for transient ischemic attack, unstable angina or heart failure, and cardiovascular death. Um, What the study did, however, demonstrate was that there was uh, significant improvements in a range of neurobehavioural outcomes, including sleepiness, despite the fact that the population in general was not that sleepy, um, and um, also improvement in mood, particularly depression uh, symptoms, and uh, also um, there was a significant uh, reduction in work days lost due to ill health. Doug, you mentioned this was a secondary prevention study uh, and the editorial that accompanied your article it raised the concept of whether primary versus secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease might have uh, shown a different result um, and possibly uh, CPAP suggested to have limited effect in patients with well-established cardiovascular disease but perhaps the benefit could have been larger in those yet to develop vascular pathology. Uh, I wonder if I could get your thoughts on this. Mm. Um, I think this is an unknown, obviously, um, and you know, someone will eventually do a primary prevention study for sleep apnea, um, hopefully. But what I'm told by the cardiovascular investigators is that um, other studies of other interventions for uh, disease prevention have shown similar relative risk reductions for primary and secondary prevention. Um, in cardiovascular disease, although, of course, the absolute uh, risk reduction is greater in secondary prevention. And as a follow-up to that, do you think the trial was long enough to see a benefit? Well, I think it was, it was long enough in the sense that it accumulated enough events to be certain that if, in the way that we designed the study, which was to demonstrate a 25% relative risk reduction, and that was based on the epidemiology that we could see at the time we designed the study, that we had enough events to be able to demonstrate a 25% relative risk reduction. We didn't have enough events to demonstrate a 10% relative risk reduction, but we certainly had enough for that, and that's how we payout the study. Hmm. Cool. Thanks, Doug. Um, well, your data uh, also showed that um, in a sub-analysis, the propensity score matched analyses where that patients who were adherent to CPAP therapy had a lower risk of stroke than those in the usual care group. Now, I'm not very familiar with this type of analysis, so Mm. I was wondering if you could elaborate, not only for me, but for our audience, like what's involved in this type of analysis? And and can you also sort of talk us through, I guess, the benefits and limitations of and and cautions with interpreting this sort of analysis? Yeah. 
Um, so when you um, look at a subgroup of people who, in your trial that have adhered to the intervention and we were fortunate, or if you, you might say unfortunate, to have the ability to actually measure that quite exquisitely when we're um, treating people with CPAP, um, you then have a group um, that's no longer necessarily representative of the whole group that was um, randomised to that intervention by virtue of the fact that they're a sort of um, good user group and uh, they have other behaviours and other characteristics that may be different. And in fact, what we found when we looked at the group that used CPAP more than four hours, in fact, they did look considerably different, both from the, the non-users or the low users of CPAP in that arm of the study and also the control group. So there immediately raises a problem. You're going to have to um, do something statistically to try and correct for that. The other way to approach it and is to use this uh, so-called propensity matching. And what we did there was to uh, um, establish through a regression model uh, the factors at baseline that were predictive of good use in those who were allocated to the CPAP arm of the study. And then we used that regression equation to match one-to-one -one each patient who'd used it more than four hours a night to a to a patient on the other side who'd never used the CPAP, and those they hadn't crossed over, and there were a few that did cross over. And so you get a one-to-one -one propensity matching uh, on a group on the other side of the study in the control group who, if they had been given CPAP, would have used it to that amount. That's the idea. Okay. But of course, when you do that, you do look as if you've got balanced groups because that's what you'd get out of that sort of um, a statistical manoeuvre, but of course you now lose the randomisation. Um, and so it now becomes more of a, a case-controlled study rather than an right. RCT. Right. And right. Be, there may be other confounding factors now that you haven't measured and you can't control for that are in the, in the mix. And so, But having done that, we had, I think, approximately 560 in each group now. We did find um, a borderline statistical uh, benefit in terms of um, the composite for cerebral events and for stroke as, as two outcome measures. Right. So do we have to be careful now because the, I guess you weren't powered or in this sort of subset that we've looked at, we're not adequately powered to address this question and, and do yeah. we need more trials in this sort of area to, to look yeah, at I think I think there were two limitations there. One is, uh, as I've mentioned, you've lost now the randomisation and there is the possibility <clears throat> for confounding in, the, in that sort of analysis. But also I think the uh, other issue is that we, the statistical um, uh, margin was quite um, doubtful. You know, we, we, I think it was 0 0.02 for one and 0 0.052 for another. Sure. Um, so while when we went to publish this, uh, we thought this should you know, become quite a little bit of a banner item. It turned out that you know, the editors were not at all keen and the statisticians not at all keen to, to make too much of that, particularly since we had not and deliberately had not um, corrected for multiple comparisons in the study. Uh, so, uh, Doug, in the SAVE trial, patients with very severe obstructive sleep apnea and severe oxygen saturation, uh, or those who were very sleepy with an Epworth of 16 or more, uh, were excluded. But there's some evidence that these are the individuals uh, at the greatest cardiovascular risk. Um, so, do the SAVE results change how, how we view these patients and, and manage these patients? 
no, I don't think it does. I mean, I think uh, we cannot say, because we didn't include them in the study, whether or not these groups, you know, would or would not be, um, you know, amenable to a benefit or from uh, the use of CPAP. I mean, I would say in relation to the very sleepy patients that I think all sleep physicians would treat those patients in any event. Um, and probably most would treat people with very severe um, desaturation, uh, those who spend, as in our study, um, uh, more than 10% of the night, less than 80%. So um, I would say, however, in terms of the sort of generalisability of the findings, that we excluded only a very small percentage of people on the basis of certainly the desaturation. I think it was around 3% of the patients that had an apnea link study that were actually excluded on that basis. So I think the study in relation to that matter is, is quite generalisable to the um, cardiovascular population. So Doug, this is um, like probably one of the largest RCTs involving CPAP as a treatment for sleep apnea, yet um, the results show that you know, we were only, you're only able to achieve like 3.3 hours a night. I guess my question is, you know, there's a lot of research in this field about trying to optimise CPAP uh, adherence, mm -hmm. but um, I guess is 3.3 hours the best we can get, and, and is that what we're stuck with at the moment, do you think? Well, um, I think this is a group, this is a, this is a pragmatic study that was done in a number of different countries. There was a range um, of a CPAP adherence by country um, that varied from about 3.9 down to 2.9, I think it was, or, or 3. But, um, you know, we didn't get any country that was, you know, had their patients using it for six and a half hours a night, nowhere near it. Um, right. So I think this is real world um, uh, CPAP adherence at the moment. We, we made a lot of effort to maximise the CPAP adherence. We had quite extensive training of the sites and the investigators and recognising that many of them were or some of them at least, were cardiovascular sites that hadn't actually had experience with sleep apnea before. And then we, we tracked the adherence um, at each of the sites um, very carefully at monthly meetings and we would feed back and, and re-educate sites if, if we felt that you know, their, their adherence was falling below par compared to the rest of the country, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, given the results of this trial, um, Doug, what do you think are the current research priorities in, in sleep and cardiovascular disease? Uh, what trial or study should we be doing next as a field? Yeah. Look, my feeling is that the um, signal uh, from the epidemiologic studies um, and also from this study um, of a possible uh, relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and uh, stroke and a benefit arising from potential benefit from CPAP treatment um, would indicate that that would be a good area for further investigation. It obviously is a challenging uh, area because we know that CPAP adherence in stroke patients, particularly those who have major strokes, is, is very problematic. But nevertheless, I think uh, people need to think carefully about how they would might design such a study. So I think that's certainly worthwhile. My other bias is that um, I suspect that um, we probably have overestimated the um, extent of the, uh, the risk from the epidemiologic studies. And one thing that does, one, one possibility of that is that we've not really properly corrected for confounding, and one of the important confounding factors is probably visceral obesity, which in general has not been corrected for in the epidemiologic studies. And now we know that uh, from the Penn 
studies in relation to um, you know the, the tongue size and the accumulation of uh, fat within the tongue that probably visceral obesity is driving uh, the size of the tongue and probably narrowing in the upper airway which may be driving um, sleep apnea severity so you may have a situation where your visceral obesity is driving um, uh, cardiovascular risk but it's also driving obstruction and the two may not necessarily be linked at least not linked in to the extent that we thought they were so that's one possibility um, yeah well, I'd like to uh, I'd like to finish there, guys. But before we do, I'd like to, um, given that you are both practicing clinicians, I'd like to sort of throw it out there to both of you actually, and and ask you, how do you think the the results of this trial have changed, or if if anything, the way you practice and consult sleep medicine and, and looking after patients with sleep apnea? So I might ask you, Doug, first. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was encouraged. Um, it is an open-label study, obviously, so one needs to be a little bit cautious. But I was nevertheless encouraged by the fact that over three and a half years, we, we could show benefits across a, a range of neurobehavioural outcomes. So the first thing I'd say to people, even though people may not be reporting a very high Epworth sleepiness score when you see them, who you identify with sleep apnea, that the conversation should always be had with patients, particularly put these group of patients with you know diff significant uh, morbidity associated with cardiovascular disease that we should offer them at least a trial of treatment on the basis that they may benefit from a quality of life perspective so that would be the first thing i'd say and i think the trial has been very helpful there and i think the signal that we found for depression symptoms was um, you know i think very significant and encouraging i think it's even more impressive actually that even with limited cpap adherence only 3.3 hours of night that you're still seeing mm. these dramatic improvements in, mm. in in quality of life and and even a decrease in sort of work a days off work due to sickness so yeah but I think the difference it would make in my practice, I think, uh, would be around the patient who is genuinely struggling with CPAP, who has minimal symptoms, who um, is fearful that they're you know, going to have another heart attack or a stroke or so on. And, and you just have to have the conversation with them and share the evidence with them that, um, you know, in this study where... You know, the average utilisation of CPAP was at this level. There was actually, you know, little benefit. Well, there's no benefit that we could definitely show in relation to cardiovascular risk reduction, and that, that evidence needs to be shared with the patient. And then they, you know, in consultation with you, needs to make the decision whether to continue or not. But I wouldn't be twisting the arm of someone who's minimally symptomatic, struggling with CPAP, to continue on the basis that they're going to get a definite benefit in terms of cardiovascular outcomes. How about you, Garen? Uh, yeah, well, I agree with Doug on both of those two issues. Um, there's, there's no doubt CPAP is a, an excellent treatment for symptoms and neurocognitive manifestations, although not everyone can tolerate it. So as Doug said, uh, if people are struggling and their quality of life is potentially impaired by uh, their attempts at CPAP therapy, they uh, can be more relaxed now about stopping. Um, but also it highlights for me the importance of uh, looking at um, the whole patient and the fact that we know severe obstructive sleep apnea is clearly associated with cardiovascular disease. It's a good biomarker of that. Uh, and we probably need to be better as sleep physicians at actually treating the obesity and the other cardiovascular risk factors. And I think it helps refocus us on, on the importance of that, given we know, we know there's, there's good evidence of the benefits of, of weight loss uh, and, and we've got to be uh, multidimensional as physicians. 
Great. Well, thank you both so much for your time and, and thoughts about this uh, this work and, and sharing it with the ATS SRN community. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure, Brad. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah.